electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Power Lunch, everybody. Alongside Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Matheson. Coming up, Elon Musk unplugged and uncensored. A big interview yesterday. You probably heard about it. We're going to look beyond the expletives and discuss what he said about Tesla. And we're just about an hour away from that company's event to mark the first deliveries of its so-called Cybertruck. Plus, it's been a November to remember for stocks. The Dow up 8%. And that one's the laggard. And these gains continue, Kelly, into December. Well, they are continuing this afternoon with the Dow up 306 points right now. Uh, that's eight-tenths of a percent. Mirror image for the NASDAQ down about that much right now, while the S&P is down about seven points. Here are the numbers for the month of November. Salesforce, a big reason the Dow is outperforming today. It's adding more than 100 points. The index beat on earnings, raised on guidance, at least partially on hopes for AI. Uh, and there you saw the 10 no, 10% gain for the NASDAQ, about 8% gains for the S&P and for the Dow this month, Ty. All right, let's uh, begin with Tesla as we are awaiting the company's big event to mark the first delivery of the so-called Cybertruck. Phil LeBeau joins us now uh, for more on what this launch means for the company. It's been a long time coming, Phil. It has been, Tyler. And I think people originally, when they first introduced the Cybertruck a number of years ago, people thought, well, here in the next couple of years, we're going to see this. You had the pandemic come through. You had a number of things uh, delay the production and then ultimately the first deliveries of the Tesla Cybertruck. Keep in mind, with the stainless steel body, with the design that is incorporated into this vehicle, um, this is not an easy vehicle to manufacture. This is not your run-of-the-mill vehicle that you can crank out you know, one after the other. They've talked about the challenges of producing this Cybertruck. They're just delivering the first 10 this afternoon. One thing we're going to be watching for, what's the pricing? We, we have been told that there are going to be three levels of pricing, but exactly where the base price is and then the mid-level and then the upper end level, the, the highest of the high-end levels, we don't know those exact prices. That's one thing we're going to be watching for. In terms of what this means for the electric pickup truck market, which is just starting to develop here in the United States, keep in mind that this is going to be Far different than what we already see from Rivian as well as from Ford with the F-150 Lightning. And then to a certain extent, when you take a look at the GMC Hummer pickup, though, that's really a very niche product. Just under 1,000 have been delivered through the third quarter. And yes, Rivian through the third quarter was the number one selling electric pickup truck here in the United States. As you take a look at shares of Tesla, keep in mind that they will gradually ramp production of the Cybertruck over the next couple of years. So you're not going to see an impact on the bottom line this quarter, probably not for several quarters. And even after that, almost everybody who has looked at the, the economics, if you will, has said, look, when you're getting up to 2.3, 2.5, 2.7 million vehicles being delivered, if you manufacture and deliver, let's say, 150,000 Cybertrucks, it's not going to have a huge impact on the bottom line. That doesn't mean it's not important, though, because this is one of those vehicles, guys, that could turn heads and make people say, you know what? I've seen other Teslas on the road. This is really so cool, so unique. 
I've got to go into a gallery. I've got to check it out. And then maybe they start to consider buying a Tesla. That is the hope of Tesla executives. Well, it is a, a, a head turner uh, and in some ways to me a head sure. scratcher because as I look at these other uh, versions of trucks, the Rivian, the Ford Lightning, the GMC Hummer, I see where you put stuff. With the Tesla machine, I don't see where you put where you put junk. Where do you, you put You can it? put stuff in the back, Tyler. You, you can put stuff in the back. And people who have driven prototypes of the Cybertruck say, look, it's got a lot more room than you would expect in the back of that vehicle. Just for some, con some context, Tyler, the pickup truck market breaks down like this in the United States. About 50% of it, work trucks, fleets, your contractor, your electrician, people who truly use a pickup truck. Another 30% are those who are purpose-use people. Let's say you want to haul a, a, a horse trailer or a boat to the lake. You don't use it for work, but you do get the use out of it. And then the final 20%, those are what you would call lifestyle buyers. These are the folks who are driving around Southern California in a tricked-out pickup truck, not because they use it, not because they load stuff in the back, but because they think it's cool. And that's where the Cybertruck will fit in initially. And by the way, Southern California, Tyler, number one pickup market in the United States. All right. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Our next guest uh, describes the Cybertruck as a halo truck, one that is intended to reinvigorate the Tesla brand. Here to explain is Tom Narayan. Uh, global Autos Analyst at RBC Capital Markets has an outperform on Tesla, $301 price target. Uh, Tom, can this uh, halo truck reinvigorate a brand that is doing really very well but has not had uh, a, any kind of model refresh in several years? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if you, if you read the Walter Isaacson book on Elon Musk, you see the history of Tesla and how it started out with the Roadster and people really getting excited, the cool factor, right? You had Raptors, rappers uh, driving around in Teslas. And since then, uh, there's a little bit of staleness that's come about the Model 3 and the Model Y. Now we have some excitement about a car where there's lines wrapped around uh, stores in the past couple of days. Um, and you had signs inside the store that says, hey, if you like this, there's a Model 3 for only $29,000. So the halo effect is in full effect. Um, in order for sell, uh, Tesla to sell uh, 2.3 million units next year, mostly Model 3s and Model Ys, not the Cybertruck, people need to get re-energized and convinced to buy a Model 3 and a Model Y again. And, you know, a car is an emotional purchase. It's all about brand. And this is how you reignite the interest and the passion of a brand. Phil was talking about 20% of pickup trucks being this lifestyle type uh, buyer. And this fits right into that sweet spot. We only see them selling about 250,000 maybe max of these per year. Um, and that's is easily that a needle mover? Is that a needle mover for a company of this scale and, no. and size? It's not going to be a needle mover either way. No, no, no. It's not going to really matter. Plus... If you guys remember, my valuation is 90% autonomy, robo-taxi and FSD, only 10% cars and trucks. Uh, but we do need people to buy these products in the next year or two in order for this the, the, the thesis to work. So I do believe it's important to re-energize the brand for people to buy Model 3s and Ys. They can put FSD on those and get people excited about autonomy. So it's indirectly important 
But in of itself, I don't believe it'll be that big of a financial contributor, especially for a company with a $700 plus billion market cap. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the specifications of the truck. How does it compare in terms of size with the trucks that we're familiar with, whether it's the Dodge Ram or the F-150, F-250, the Chevy trucks, in terms of its carrying capacity and in terms of range? Yeah, it'll depend on the trims. I know we heard of three trims that they have. I think the highest end will probably have higher range than those other uh, models that we're, we've been hearing about. Uh, but they'll have one at a lower price, potentially lower price than the Ram, Silverado, and the Lightning, right? Um, so I think we'll get some diversity mm-hmm. in terms of battery range. Um, and in terms of, of storage capacity. But to Phil's point earlier, I don't know if this is going to be a work truck. I think it's going to be a lifestyle truck. Lifestyle it's probably going to be more a range, vanity truck. I would say. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> Potentially. But but there's a lot of people who buy, who drive those. I tell you, my brother lives in Texas. Kelly and there's a one. ton of pickup trucks. <laughs> How many car seats can it fit? Because I would right. just throw them in the back. It's a, it's a fine. It's bulletproof. What it's could how happen? we grew up, man. Yeah. yeah. I'm getting a little sick of the Odyssey, uh, Tom. No offense to Honda. So we, you talked about how much of your valuation for Tesla is about, about autonomy and software and all that going forward. Do we need to read anything into his comments, his disappointment with what's been going on at OpenAI? No, I don't think so. I mean, you, you, it's the other thing I got out of reading the Isaacson book is there's there's a lot of Elon speak that you just have to kind of not listen to, perhaps. Um, really, ultimately, you know, I, I, people should test out FSD beta. And I, I, I personally believe it's the best consumer product since the iPhone. Nah. It is so amazing. It's amazing. 80% but of drive. <laughs> amazing isn't yeah. good enough. You know, my iPhone, it went through years to get to where it is. You, we, can we really have, you know, trucks on the... It, I heard people the other day going, yeah, yeah, sometimes I take an eight-minute nap on my way to work. I just keep my hand on the wheel, and, it, you know, it keeps going. I'm like, I don't know about this. I don't know. Most driving I, I, most driving to me sucks. It's like I would say 80% of driving is boring and tedious in traffic, and this thing takes that out of your hands. I think a lot of people just don't realize how amazing of a product this really is. And if they can get more of these uh, and more people testing these, um, I think that could go long, for, uh, very far for folks to get excited about Tesla stock when they realize how amazing this product is, especially if they cut the price on it and get it, it, just get more people testing this product. People realize how amazing autonomy can be um, and not just like fun to drive or not drive really, but saving lives, space in our cities, really transforming society in general. In the future, I'm not saying it's not coming. But I think we're, we're in that murky, that murky middle for us still. for Anyway, we'll debate sure. that another time. For now, Tom, uh, we yeah. appreciate you joining us. Tom Narayan sure. joining us today. Speaking of Tesla, CEO Elon Musk touting his contributions to the environment at the DealBook conference last night in his interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Take a listen. Tesla currently sells uh, two, twice as much uh, in terms of electric vehicles as the rest of electric car makers in, in the United States combined. Tesla has done more to help the environment than uh, all other companies combined. It would be fair to say that, therefore, as a leader of the company, I've done more for the environment than everyone else, any single human on Earth. Let's pose the question. Uh, what's he done for the environment? What are the implications? Let's discuss it all with Jonathan Maxwell. He's CEO of Sustainable Development Capital. Jonathan, you want to take the question? Thank you. Yeah, well, I think, um, first of all, kudos to Elon Musk for 
um, putting such brilliant branding and uh, marketing behind the electric vehicle. Um, he's right in the U in the sense in the US is the biggest player. Of course, China has been producing more electric vehicles now um, than the US. Um, I think BYD um, overtook Tesla Q3 this year, over 500,000 cars manufactured compared mm. to 300,000 and change by Tesla. But I think the the movement, the biggest problem with oil, um, which is really the, the fuel for transport, is that it's incredibly inefficient. Most of it goes up in smoke. About three quarters of it is wasted as heat. So the, actually, and it's hugely carbon intensive. So moving to electric vehicles is great from a decarbonization of oil and petrol perspective, but it's tiny. It's still only 2% of oil has been displaced by electric vehicles of any kind. So the problem that we've got is so big and so massive, and it can be addressed by electrifying transport, but even transport sits within a much bigger context. Buildings, industry, transport, incredible amounts of energy being used, most of it being wasted. So I, I would say that Mr. Musk is doing a fantastic job. He's got to keep pace with China, number one. And number two, we're just skimming the surface. This uh, so, clean energy revolution. So I hear you saying that in the grand scheme of things, uh, in terms of decarbonizing the environment, transportation is a relatively minor part of it. Transportation is a very big part of it. It's about it's about seventy percent of energy is in, in used in industry buildings and transport. But I thought you just transport. said it was two percent or something. I Only two percent of oil has been displaced using electric vehicles globally. Oh. So, oh, oh, so what we're doing is we're exactly. making more and more and more. There's been six trillion invested in renewables in the last 20 years, three trillion in the grid. We've got incredible companies like BYD and Tesla that are making electric vehicles. But we've got to put this into context. We're not yet in the earth saving territory. You know, in fact, these uh, this equipment uses incredible amounts of metals and minerals and requires an incredible amount of mining and resources. It certainly reduces the environmental footprint of using energy, but it's going to take a lot of time and resource to make a huge difference. 98% of the oil that makes transport, it hasn't been displaced. And that's the scale of the challenge that we're facing here. So we're on the road, but we're only just getting started on the journey. Jonathan, tell us about COP28. I, I, I thought the economists kind of put it well when they said, if you go back to Paris, it's not like there was anything truly binding about that back in what was it, 2015, but it really did catalyze the rise of this whole kind of sustainable investing movement, which is great. The flip side is that it's threatening to bankrupt some governments. So as we stand here trying to figure out where the next 10 years go, the fact that President Biden didn't even go to the summit, you know, what, what are we to read into that? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, President Biden and the U.S. government have put out one of the largest stimulus packages for clean energy ever produced. Um, you could argue what more what more can they do and say a year from an election um, in the United States. Going back to Paris, uh, Paris was a landmark agreement. It committed everybody to decarbonization targets. COP28 in Dubai, which is what started today, is a stock take. It calls everybody to reckoning and says, how are you doing? The challenge is that actually that's not going so well. Right. Um, there's, been, there's been incredible amounts of energy of money put into clean energy. But going back to my point about oil and transport, there's very little displacement of fossil fuels. So since Paris, fossil fuel demand, oil, gas and coal, which is 82% of the world's energy, has gone up. So although we've seen incredible gains made in the renewable energy industry, uh, they've been overwhelmed by the growth in uh, fossil fuels. So we need a different approach. And the last point I'll make is 
That's what I'm hopeful for with COP28. There are two things fundamentally that COP28 calls for. Renewable energy, which is great, add more energy into the system. Hmm. But there's a, a new phrase, it's called energy efficiency. And it says, stop wasting, implicitly, it says, stop wasting three quarters of the energy we're using in the world, because that isn't just the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. It's also, frankly, the largest source of emission reductions. What do you mean by cheap. wasting? What, what do you mean by stop wasting? So I'll give you a, a basic um, summary. So about 10% of the world's energy is lost just by extracting it and converting it into something useful, for mm. example, oil and gas pipelines. Another 50% of it, for example, in electricity generation goes up as smoke because when you put a molecule into a, a turbine to make electricity, half of it disappears into the atmosphere, bearing in mind only 3% of the world's energy is uh, wind and solar. Yeah. Most of it's thermal and it goes. And then once the energy's got out of the power plant, you've already lost 60%. Another 10% gets lost and in so the transmission. How, and, again, and I'm trying to jam this all in about 10 seconds, but basically you think energy, what do you call that, carbon capture? I mean, is that the next big, and, and where's the money going to come from? Again, quickly, if you can. Uh, Decentralised energy, bring, it, bring generation close to the point of use, solar, heat capture, uh, heat pumps. The second thing is reduce the amount of energy that's, that's used at the point of use. Hmm. Uh, better lights, heating, ventilation, air conditioning. The International Energy Agency yesterday pointed out that energy efficiency, so on-site generation and efficiency, can contribute 50% of all the decarbonisation the world needs by 2030. And I think that's the revolution that COP is going to be presenting. It's the, it's the asset class my firm, Sustainable Development Capital, invests in, and it's the topic of my book, The Edge. Well, we appreciate it because from an investment point of view and also just to try to figure out what is going to come out of this summit, uh, we know where to look now. Jonathan, thanks for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Jonathan Maxwell. All right, coming up, the Cybertruck is entering a space with lots of competition, whether it's your everyday names like the Ford F-150, luxury players like Ferrari. Further ahead, we're going to take a look at a $400,000 SUV. But first up, next November keeps giving, thanks to investors. Uh, the S&P up 9%, the NASDAQ up 11% for the month. Will this strength hold up into year end? November comes to an end, December around the corner. We'll be right back. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. Taking a look at the markets over uh, this past month, and it looks like Christmas came early. It has certainly been... 
as they say, a November to remember. The Dow and S&P both up about 8% so far. The Dow adding uh, rather sprightly to its gains today, up 340 points. The Nasdaq up more than 10%. So will the climb continue? And are the numbers setting us up for a Santa Claus rally? Let's bring in Brian von Cronkite, portfolio manager with Allspring Global Investments. Brian, did this, uh, did this move in the markets surprise you at all? And do you think it sustains uh, into December and maybe even into next year? I'm not that surprised by it, given the data we're seeing. The economy is slowing, but inflation is coming down nicely. And the Fed is orchestrating what they're trying to get done. They're trying to slow the economy down. But right now, this rally, as it continues into December, which I think it might, is really on the hopes of the Fed um, orchestrating the landing, but it, it seems to me that it's based more on a Christmas wish than on a 40-year-plus history of Fed inertia. They're typically very slow to react. They rarely preemptively do anything. And so I have to think that our base case is the Fed will achieve their goals. They're going to slow the economy. Companies will react accordingly by cutting CapEx, cutting jobs. And we're going to end up having to assume the Fed will be late in responding. So we might get this Christmas rally, but it makes me very fearful for what Q1 might have in store for us. So you expect a, a marked economic slowdown, despite the fact that the third quarter numbers were just revised, I believe it was yesterday, to 5.2% gains for the GDP. This quarter, everybody says, is slowing down a, a, a good bit. So, so talk me through the next six months economically. The next six months, I think, are going to see the impact of a long string of Fed tightening policy. So what we're going to see is uh, consumer credit begin to weaken, consumer confidence slow down, spending alter their form. We're seeing trade down already with consumer behavior. Um, from that, you'll start to see a demand for loans at the commercial level begin to slow, and companies will begin to pull back on their CapEx. That will then reduce the need for jobs, unemployment rises, and all of a sudden we have this cascading effect into a slowing economy mm -hmm. that is already in the cake, so to speak. The idea that the Fed's going to all of a sudden cut that off right here when they still have some work to be done is just, I don't believe, something we've seen in history before. So um, my base case, again, is we're going to see that slowdown materialize. Companies will respond as they should which will then catalyze the, the, the beginning of the bottoming process in, in 2024. Kerwig, Dr. Pepper, CBRE Group, Carlisle Companies, you like all these names in the mid-cap space? I like all these names for a few different reasons. One, they all have defensive characteristics, either around some of the, their cash flow streams being very stable through this troughing process. But more importantly, each of them are doing things to drive their own destiny. This is one of the most important things we can do as investors today, when the Fed probably won't be supportive to us overall, what are individual companies doing to drive their destiny? And so just pulling one out of that list, for example, Carlyle, ticker CSL, they're in the building product space. People think of them as being somewhat cyclical. The reality is their cash flows are pretty stable as a lot of it's recurring revenue from replacement business. But they're in the middle of selling off their very final non-core asset, which will bring in about 2 to $2.5 billion of cash, moving them to a net cash balance sheet. As they recycle that cash flow into their core business, it will demand a higher multiple. But in the interim, that powerful balance sheet will protect us as investors if the economy does slide into a deeper recession than we all hope actually happens. Hmm, interesting as that is a defensive play there. Bryant, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. Bryant Van Cronkite. Further ahead, Microsoft securing a non-voting board seat at OpenAI. Does the move quell some of the remaining questions about Microsoft's interest in the startup after a turbulent month? We'll discuss that in Tech Check right after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 
Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back. Inflation numbers out this morning and key ones for the Fed shows the core PCE rising two tenths from last month and three and a half percent from a year ago. The headline up about three percent now in line with expectations. But that 3.0, Rick, is catching some eyebrows. Uh, let's get a look at how the bond market's reacting to the data and why are yields up today, at least the last time I checked. Well, I'll tell you, let's start at the beginning. I like that PCE core deflator month over month. Yes, it was up only two tenths. Look at a chart. That's really good news for the Fed. That and continuing claims of two month high or two year highs. Now, if you annualize that two tenths over three months, it comes out to 2.4%. You annualize it over six months at 2.5%. These are close to Fed target. The problem is, well, the problem is the next chart. I'm going to mix apples and oranges here a bit, but here's a 100-year chart of the CPI index that we had just, what, last Tuesday. Now, if you notice, it basically goes up every month because what we always discuss and the only thing the Fed cares about is trying to deal with the present and the future. Annualized is the trick. An annualized one-tenth or two-tenths is an experience that the public doesn't get to enjoy. The public gets to enjoy that CPI chart, which goes up, up, up in compounds. So prices might be annualized from this point forward at a low rate, but if you look at what prices are in the rearview mirror, that's what the public experiences. Why are interest rates up? Well, look at twos and tens. After all the data was out, the Fed should like interest rates reversed higher. I think it's a logistics technical issue today. Look at twos and tens over two days. You broke through the top of the range. You held a very technically significant four and a quarter and tens. It's a bit of a breather and it's the end of the month. Tyler, Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick Santelli, thank you very much. Ahead on Power Launch, our Econ Ecosystem Series continues. With prices still high throughout the economy, we take a look at one area consumers can still find value. Those would be the dollar stores. Power Launch will be right back. Welcome back to Power Lunch. I'm Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News update at this hour. Senator Tommy Tuberville says he may drop some of the holds on military nominees next week. The Alabama Republican has been holding up military promotions for months in protest of a Pentagon policy that allows time off and reimbursement for service members and family seeking abortions out of state. He has faced backlash from Democrats, the White House, and members of his own party who say he's threatening military preparedness. Publishing giant Penguin Random House filed a federal lawsuit against the state of Iowa for a new law banning books in schools that depict or describe sex and books for young children that discuss gender identity. Penguin Random House argues that the law is so vague it could potentially target a broad range of books. Colorado football head coach Deion Sanders was named Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year, despite his new team going just four and eight this season. He's the first collegiate coach to win the title in more than a decade. The magazine wrote that in less than a year, Sanders has transformed the program and breathed fresh life into the campus. Kelly, this is his will be his seventh time on the cover of Sports Illustrated, so I guess 
he has broken whatever jinx there was with regard to that. I would like to bring in Tyler Matheson for comment here. I would just say, I mean, it's, Look, he's no doubt att attracted all this attention to the program and a lot of these wonderful athletes, but it's a little early still, right, to call yeah. him sports person. Yeah, <laughs> when you finish four and eight, uh, there are a lot of coaches who've been fired for going four and eight. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, listen, he, as you said, Bertha. But Neon Dion, man, you can't deny He has deny created him, a, a level brings... of excitement. Uh, such yeah. that my son decided to apply to Colorado Boulder. <laughs> I think simply really? because ne Neon Dion was there. <laughs> we'll see. Well, that's amazing. I, I, you see? know, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think, okay, who should it have been? Who should it have been? I was thinking that too. Uh, maybe Lionel Messi. Ooh. You know, maybe. For what he did maybe. to re-energize the uh, MSL and, and also uh, yeah. winning the World Cup. Now, that was last year, but... Interesting one. Anyhow. Tweet us your hot takes. Tweet Thank you, Bertha. Thank Time you, for another installment now of our Econ Ecosystem series. We've looked at big box stores and mall retailers this week. Now we're turning to the discount retailer space with a dive into the dollar stores in particular. Oppenheimer out with a new note on the heels of Dollar Tree's Q3 miss, saying sentiment remains more positive toward Dollar Tree versus Dollar General. Both stocks higher today but down this year, with Dollar General losing almost half its value since January alone. Joining us to discuss is Rupesh Parikh. He's managing director and senior analyst at Oppenheimer. Rupesh, have they turned a corner yet? And what is it going to take to turn it? Yeah, so I think from a numbers perspective, I think both Dollar, Ge Dollar General and Dollar Tree, EPS estimates out there are bottomed. So I think all of us, you know, say for DD specifically, are waiting for a comp reacceleration. And then for Dollar Tree, you know, it's a little more complex story. The Dollar Tree banner is doing really great, you know, mid-single-digit comp grower, while the family dollar segment is against long. So, you know, that was a miss that we saw with their report earlier this week. And they talked about family dollar in particular, discretionary purchases are slowing. I mean, all of this, if I break out my 0708 playbook, fits in with the narrative of a slowing economy, slowing consumer, except everything else doesn't right now. So it's been a very strange year to watch them stumble, even while everyone else is talking about a soft landing. Yeah, so I think it's very tricky here. So you have a couple things going on. So first, you're still laughing very difficult pandemic comparisons to some of these discretionary categories. And secondarily, you know, you look where we are in the economic cycle and government stimulus is being pulled back. So SNAP benefits have continued to go down year over year. Q3, you had greater pressures than what you saw during the first half of the year. Tax refunds have been lower. And then you look at food inflation, you know, food prices are up more than 20% over, over a multi-year period. So that the consumer, this lower income consumer is facing a number of headwinds out there. Yeah. So the stocks, do you think they reflect, you know, Dollar General in particular, these challenges already? Is it possible we're going to look back in 2024 as a positive inflection point? Yes, yeah, so I think I think DG is clearly bottom. We had a note out a few weeks ago, you know, calling a bottom around the hundred dollar level. Uh, you have a new CEO that's coming that came back, Todd Bassos. We're going to hear from him next week. And I think investors are increasingly optimistic that he can help turn around the business. So, yeah, I think there is a chance for a positive inflection next year with the business. And that's what we're very focused on with the report next week. And then what would you say are the broader implications? Are they strategic misses, oversaturation? Is it Timu and Sheehan's fault? I mean, what is it that has accounted for uh, the such difficult stocks? Yeah, so I would say, again, challenges with the low-income consumer, uh, margin pressures that, that these companies have faced. So when you look at the dollar stores, when you sell lower margin consumables, that, that, has a, that has negative margin implications for the mix. So these companies have had severe margin headwinds. Um, and then, yeah, you know, waning top line growth has been, you know, just a challenge for the sector as, as you lost some of these dif difficult pandemic comparisons. 
And then for Dollar General, you know, you've had some execution issues, uh, you know, under under with the under the old CEO, uh, and now they're trying to rectify them with improving their supply chain. And they they made a lot of progress there. They've also invested more in wages. So it's it's a number of factors out there. I think both chains are are addressing them. Uh, if I look at both DG and Dollar Tree, uh, we are perform rated on both. Uh, DG, you know, we think there's greater greater turnaround potential in the, in the coming years. They have strong cash generation, and we're still optimistic they can uh, drive an earnings reacceleration. And are we going to look back and say, oh, the lower income consumer was able to kind of get get some mojo back? And if so, how how so? Yeah, so SNAP benefits will start to lap some of the SNAP headwinds next year. So I think that that could be a positive. Uh, so then we're optimistic. You know, you lap the SNAP headwinds and you you hopefully get a better discretionary environment. And then, you know, I think that could help the lower income consumer, but it's still it's still very much CBD. So, you know, I don't think any of us have great visibility in terms of when we'll see that turn in that in that lower income consumer. Yeah, absolutely. Rupesh, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Rupesh Parikh. All righty. Coming up, a peek under the hood. Ferrari's new SUV is its first vehicle with four doors. That's an SUV. Uh, they call it an SUV. It's out front. It's on the ground. Yeah. Robert's taller than it. $400,000 price tag. We were lucky enough to borrow one for a test drive. I should say Robert was lucky enough. (laughs) He and we will tell you all about it when Power Lunch returns in a couple of minutes. Developments overnight around ChatGPT parent company OpenAI. Sam Altman officially back as CEO, and Microsoft now securing non-voting uh, non-voting board seat there. Dieter Bosa is at the heart of Silicon Valley for today's tech check, uh, the Wonder Co. Summit in Menlo Park, California, with a special guest, former NSA director Mike Rogers. Dieter. Yes, indeed. Tyler, thank you very much. Um, Mike Rogers, Admiral Mike Rogers, great to have you. Um, You have an interesting perspective on all of this, being in the government for so long, yet here on Sand Hill Road, iconic place in Silicon Valley, the conversation at WonderCo this morning has been all about artificial intelligence, the benefits and the risks. So I wonder from you, what role does government have to play in the development or the regulation of AI, if at all? So look, government clearly normally concerned about the safety and well-being of its citizens, also concerned about the regulatory or the competitive business aspects of this. So I look, I think there's a role to be played. The, the challenge is what is that role and how does it develop it or execute it? Because part of the challenge is most of this technology is being developed in the private sector. Yeah. You know, out here in other places, government doesn't have much expertise, much knowledge about it, is not playing a significant role in its development, and yet the government has a significant potential regulatory role to play here. So it's going to be about the power partnership. How do we work together, government and the private sector? And yet it feels like we're waiting for the two to collide. Generative (laughs) AI and a presidential election next year. You were director of the NSA during the 2016 presidential election. How do you view the upcoming one? Do you think that this is a more perilous position in terms of misinformation and disinformation? So clearly technology is enhancing the ability to mislead, misinform, and quite frankly attempt to manipulate or sway opinion based on false information, false images. So you have to acknowledge that's a dynamic. Now, there's a lot of work ongoing to try to mitigate that, try to make sure it doesn't have a significant impact. 
in 2016, for the first time, we really watched social media really used at a, at a significant level, as well as cyber mm -hmm. attempt to manipulate the outcome. Our view at the time was it didn't work, but we acknowledged, hey, look, this is a level of effort out of the Russians we haven't seen before with a level of technology. So I think there's a lot of focus for 24. You know, I'm comfortable that we are going to have an ex we're going to have an election process that we as citizens can all believe in. Um, I'm sure there'll be challenges, but in the end, I think we'll get through it. That sounds pretty optimistic. Um, I am an optimistic person by background. You mentioned the Russian interference in the 2016 election. There was a report from Meta today that says that China is an increasing source of covert influence and disinformation campaigns. They said that could get supercharged mm. by advances in generative AI. What do you think um, voters, the government, et cetera, need to know about that interference? What does that tell you? So clearly we need to try to make sure we understand it. We need to try to work hard to identify what is accurate, what is not accurate. You see this now, particularly with, how, so when we implement AI, for example, are we going to define products that have been generated by AI so that a consumer understands, okay, this is artificially generated, so to speak. There's lots of tools like that we're going to be looking at. In the end, as, as individuals, we just need to learn to be more discerning. Just because you see something or read something, that doesn't mean it's accurate, true, or correct. Right, so the responsibility for deep fakes, right? Maybe on the companies that are helped to produce them, but what about, for example, a TikTok, right? Mm. Which is a Chinese company, and of course, DC, um, where you have operated for I, a long time, has been worried about that. How? big is that threat of TikTok in the upcoming so election? For example, Have we right, done we, enough, too? We, we worried about TikTok from two perspectives, yeah. I think. One was manipulation, propaganda, disinformation. The second was extraction of data based on the interface with customers that we have. Both of those issues are very valid concerns. I think there's ways for companies to address them. But the, part of the challenge here is <laughs> the Chinese model fundamentally allows the Chinese government under the national security laws, the latest of which they just amended earlier this year. Basically, if the Chinese government says there's a national security implication, they can access anything that they want associated with mm -hmm. the Chinese company. Um, and so my view is we have to build strategies that acknowledge that and account for that. So not just an all-out ban. You think that there's ways of accomplishing that right. without banning? My view banning? is, look, we, we probably are going to need it to be a little bit new, more nuanced here. So, for example, we might say, well, we're not going to allow this technology to be used by government individuals. We're not going to be allow this technology to be used in sensitive or classified areas. On the other hand, there's parts of it what I would, where I would say, look, we should feel comfortable with society right. using it for something. I want to ask you more broadly about the U.S.-China relationship. I know that you were watching APEC, which was not far from here in San Francisco just a few weeks ago. How has that relationship changed? I mean, it felt like they put a floor. That was sort of the talking point under the relationship. Did you see any significant ways in which that has changed? Is that going to be lasting? Do you see relation, the relationship getting better? So first, I think both parties have come to the conclusion. I don't speak for the government, but my, and I was just in Beijing, coincidentally, about 10 days ago. Um, my takeaway is that both governments, China and the United States, have come to the conclusion that we need to build a strong floor. And what I mean by that is we don't want this relationship to get worse. And we don't want this relationship to be disrupted so significantly that it either has significant economic dimensions that are harmful to one or both parties, or we, we don't get into an inadvertently crisis or fight, Taiwan or some other scenario. Mm -hmm. So you saw them talk about where they feel that we are compatible or united. What you didn't hear them talk about was, so what are the issues that are still out there mm -hmm. where we fundamentally disagree? I think they, they both came to the conclusion for right now, 
we're going to focus on right. the positive, not so much on the negative. There's two things that I'd be watching for, though, that I think China will be in particular be very interested in. Taiwan election will be held January the 13th, and the leader will then actually assume office in May. And we have our own election in November of 24. And that the Chinese will be paying great attention to both events. And you brought it full circle. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> always great to get your insights, Thanks, Admiral Deirdre. Mike Rogers. Guys, I'll send it back to you over at headquarters. Deirdre, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Our dear Jabosa with Mike Rogers. Coming up, racing higher. Ferrari shares are lower today, but up 67% this year amid a record run. We'll take a look at its first ever four-seat vehicle and get you a little test drive. And as we head to break, check out the S&P 500 on pace to close out its best month since July of 2022 and one of its best months ever, up 8.5%. We're back after a quick break. Welcome back. Ferrari's first ever four-door vehicle has officially hit U.S. soil. $400,000 price tag and all. It's 100000 per door. <laughs> Our Robert Frank was lucky enough to get one on loan for the day so we could get a peek under the hood. I, when I pulled up, I saw you with this car. I had no idea it was a SUV. It's, it's very low to the ground. Well, Ferrari doesn't like to call it an SUV. Ah. What they say is that it's the first four-door, four-seat Ferrari. So I call it the FUV, the Ferrari <laughs> utility vehicle. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was, I'm not sure they're going to like that any better. It was, it was a huge risk for Ferrari. Number one, because you know, you're putting the Ferrari badge on a four-door vehicle, and therefore, is it truly a Ferrari? So lots of people hated this car even before it was launched. The second reason is that a lot of the supercar makers had already come out with SUVs. You know, Aston Martin, the Porsche, um, Cayenne, and Macan, those are 20 years old now. Wow. Lamborghini's SUV is six years old. So they were kind of late to the game, so they had to really do something special. And boy, did they do it with this car. So, Tyler, I know you like the roar. I do. You like the roar. This is a naturally aspirated V12. We're talking old school Ferrari V12. They're not going to make any more of these after this car. And a V12. It, a V12. Yeah. Um, and it just has 715 horsepower. My goodness. And it jumps. Zero to 60 in under three seconds. And I've never driven anything like this. It's not an SUV. It's not a sports car. It's something in between that initially is is almost hard to drive because it turns so quickly, it accelerates so quickly, it brakes so quickly that it kind of feels like a sports car, but it's over two tons. And so you have to get used to that weight and throwing that weight around the road with that much power. It's, it takes some getting used yeah, to, it's but it's very addictive. You, you mentioned a couple of their competitors, Porsche and uh, Maserati, came out with four-door vehicles. And yeah. that was a surprise to me. when It took a while to get used. That's a Porsche with the four-door. It's going to have the same effect here. It was a surprise to, to, viewer, to audiences, but also a surprise success. When Lamborghini came out, no one knew whether it was going to sell. Now it's more than half of Lamborghini's sales is that right? come from the SUV. Now, what Ferrari was also mindful of is not having this take over the brand like those other SUVs have done with some of those other. Porsche sells mostly Macans and Cayennes now, not as many 911s. Yeah. So what Ferrari has said is, look, this car the Purosangue, will only account for a certain percentage of sales. They won't tell us what that number is. It's a secret. My guess is it's probably somewhere under 25% because they don't want to be defined as the sport utility vehicle that you can drive around and put your groceries in. They want to be defined by (laughs) racing and by high performance. But they're now a publicly traded stock, so they have to grow. 
and this is a new audience. Dealers tell me about a third of the people that are buying this car are brand new to Ferrari. They've never owned one because wow. they want something they can drive every day. And mm-hmm. you think I'd fit in the back seat? You would absolutely fit. I'm 6'1", I fit in the back seat with lots of headroom to go. I was shocked at how much space it is, not just in the back seat, but the cargo area. Very right. interesting. Okay. Okay, we'll get one. Put it on yes. your, put it on your <laughs> well, list. Yeah. Here's All the, the key. kids will Here's fit. the key. This is the key. There's the key. Oh, you, can, you can drive That's it out. That's a cool thing. It just knows if you're in the car and it starts. or It, yeah. it knows. And it's sold out till 2026. So if you order one now, you're not getting one till 2026. Wow. That's how much demand there is Look for it. Look at that. That's a cool yeah, nice little thing. pin. All right. <laughs> yeah, wear that. Robert, thank <laughs> Robert, you very thank much. You. Thank you, guys. Coming up, Gmail purge. Why you might want to check into your Google account before midnight tonight. Power Lunch is back in two minutes. Tonight on CNBC, we are continuing to celebrate the life of Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chair Charlie Munger, including this gem about how he and Warren Buffett became so successful. We got a little less crazy than most people, and a little less stupid than most people, and that really helped us. In addition, we were given as much longer time to run than most people because something kept us alive in our 90s. And it gives a long track from our little fiddling start all the way to the 90s. Those are the two things that really happened. And, of course, we wised up over time. A little less crazy, a little less stupid than most, a little extra time. Charlie Munger, A Life of Wit and Wisdom, will be tonight on CNBC at 8 p.m. Eastern. They were filming it for his 100th birthday, which oh, was, right? I think it was Becky said he was about five weeks shy of hitting that milestone. So at least they have the very recent footage for this. Yeah, he was, uh, he was kind of yin to, to Buffett's yang, I suppose. Uh, Buffett, a slightly more avuncular, uh, homespun present. Munger, a little more tart-tongued, a little more... Um, acidic, willing to say what came into his head first. And enjoyed playing that role. Yeah. I think the two of them worked so well together. And was, I was saying the hardest thing about losing him now is just you'll never know for sure what his take is going to be on some future thing. We know mm-hmm. he hated Bitcoin, but he loved BYD, the Chinese EV maker. I mean, he got Berkshire to invest in 2008. He was no Luddite. Mm-hmm. So um, unfortunately, now we'll never know for the next you know big new thing. Uh, we can probably guess with some certain market manias, though. All right. Well, we'll all be watching that tonight. I believe it's 8 p.m. Uh, on the life and times of Charlie Munger. There were some long times there. Yes. For Mr. Munger. Yeah. Uh, thanks for watching Power Lunch, everybody. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 